Hey jerks, this is Full Casting Crew, a piece of derivative content which grows from a piece of cultural expression like so many maggots on a corpse at the University of Tennessee's body farm. We're kind of hoping those maggots might metamorphose into beautiful butterflies of truth, but let's not kid ourselves about our chances or about our understanding of entomology. But you might as well listen because there's a whole rabbit hole worth of stuff in here and there's no mouse ears, golden arches, smile-shaped arrows, or whatever brandable badge of subservience to the cultural overlords in this distraction industrial complex might have been computer drawn by some algorithm while I read this in earshot. Wow. What was it? Branded badge of subservience? Uh, yeah. That captures much of the attitude of the film that we're here to discuss today, which is Heather's. Before we get to that, I have one quick piece of viewer mail I want to read to you. And when I say quick, I mean quick. It consists of a two-word email that we received at the pod's email account, which is fullcastandcrewpod at gmail.com. Please reach out. Let us know who you are, where you are, and what you are watching. Mir Mota writes the podcast and says, simply... Please close. That's it. Makes you think, huh? Yeah. I don't know if he means, like, figure out a better way to wrap up the podcast. I think he means stop doing what you're doing I think altogether. <laughs> I think that's what Mirror is saying. Well, Mirror, we won't be stopped by you or any of the haters out there. Yeah. We do this for the, for the lovers, the listeners. I was going to say, it's only when the people who love us tell us to stop that maybe we'll consider it. Maybe. Even then. Although some of them have. But. <laughs> Anyway, we are here to talk about Heathers. So, Chris, greetings and salutations. This episode is going to be so varied because we're talking about the acid-tongued, brilliantly written, razor-sharp 1988 classic Heathers. Heathers, in case you had a brain tumor for breakfast these past 30 years, is the story of Veronica, played by a then 16-year-old Winona Ryder, navigating the hallways and cafeterias of that most dangerous and precarious place in American society, high school. Matt, hit me with some of Rush's iconic suburban anti-conformity classic subdivisions. And doesn't that say it all? In with a cool crowd comprised of three girls all named Heather, Veronica actually has hilariously dim-winded parents, a backyard croquet setup, and an essential decency that still allows room for murderous impulses when egged on by the effortlessly cool new kid in town, Jason Dean, played by an arch-eyebrowed Christian Slater in a star-making performance. Through a series of staged suicides, Veronica and JD hit bottom when their plans backfire and the dearly departed, so hated in the everyday, become lionized in the sweet hereafter. JD loses his cool, Veronica rediscovers herself, and Martha Dumptruck does donuts of delight in her jazzy instead of eating the donuts of despair alone in the cafeteria. First-time screenwriter, first-time director, first-time production designer, Heathers, and yes, Chris, you will be tested on this. Bravo. Uh, what was that again? Now, one of the comments from Denise DeNovi, who's one of the producers, she said there's two kinds of people in the world. Uh, there are people who loved high school and there are people who hated high school. Chris, which side are you on? Uh, probably hated, I guess. Tried not to have such strong emotions. I tried to keep my head down and muddle my way through. So you were not in with the cool kids. Jason, it probably does come as a bit of a surprise, 
but no, I don't. I would think you would be popular. I mean, I think you went to high school in a different era than I did. So I would think that by the time you got to high school, some of the subdivisions were perhaps eased. But maybe it's still the same. I don't know. Were like, you a theater nerd? Aside, was, Were you a high school theater nerd? Uh, yeah, I, you know, I was in theater. I had friends who read comic books too. I had friends that I had gone to elementary school, and there wasn't that much overlap, sort of between them. So you know, that was all fine. And while the football team and cheerleaders did exist. They did feel like an oppressive force, but not like an important thing. It's not like we were in Friday Night Lights town where people actually thought that this was of of import, though I guess uh, some people did like it. And I think I once did go to a part of a basketball game. Just one part. I I definitely didn't feel like it was the best time of my life. But on the other hand, it's because things just are always getting better. Well, I just asked as a precursor to the conversation, At least for me, my reaction to this movie is almost entirely informed by my own high school experiences. I did not have a good high school experience. I was in a school where through a combination of my own personality and circumstance, I just was like a stranger in a strange land without any benefit of any of the Aldous Huxley psychedelics, (laughs) except, did he write Stranger in a Strange Land or was that Heinlein? Oh, no, uh... Yeah, Heinlein. Heinlein, sorry. Um, Without any, well, Heinlein's not really known for psychedelics, so my analogy falls apart. As you can see, I didn't get a good education. That's one of the things I was lacking. (laughs) This is proof. That's why I love, 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 capital L's, this movie. Uh Uh-huh. I think it is the greatest American high school movie ever made. Avid listener, my friend James, posted on the Instagram account because I had said this was the greatest high school movie ever made. And he said, Fast Times is the greatest high school movie ever made. To me, it's not even close. I think that the way this movie has substance, style, and humor, it has heft, it has weight, it's about something. I love Fast Times, don't get me wrong. It's a great comedy. But this movie has more than just comedy going on. It caught a kind of wave in the sense of this was at the peak, uh, you know, it came out in 1988, so it was around the peak of John Hughes's high school movies, Fast Times had already been made. There were so many great entries into the genre that the genre was, if I can use a high school metaphor, was like a pimple ready to pop. And uh, by catching the top of it, it was able to both take advantage of the tropes as a kind of shorthand and also skewer them and skewer society uh, as a whole. Let's start just watching a brief little clip here. This is the start of the movie, which begins with the Heathers playing croquet. And they're all color coordinated with the croquet balls so that Heather number one is always in red as her croquet ball is, et cetera, et cetera. The opening shot of the movie is this croquet game. And then that scene concludes with what you have on the screen behind you, which is Winona Ryder buried up to her neck and being bonked on the head with a croquet ball. And it's such a great opening shot and scene because it intimates the hyper reality that we're about to enter into. It's one of the many aspects of the movie that is so brilliantly constructed and effective at setting the world that we're about to visit. Here is a little introductory diary writing by Veronica. Dear diary, Heather told me she teaches people real life. She said, real life sucks losers dry. If you want to fuck with the eagles, you have to learn to fly. I said, so you teach people how to spread their wings and fly? She said, yes. I said, you're beautiful. God, come on, Veronica. What is your damage, Heather? Don't blame me, blame Heather. She told me to haul your ass into the calf pronto. Back me up, Heather. Yeah, she really wants to talk to you, Veronica. Hey, I'm going. Jesus Christ. 
Veronica, finally. I got a note of Kurt Kelly's. I need you to forge a hot and horny but realistically low-key note in Kurt's handwriting, and we'll slip it onto Martha Dumpchuck's lunch tray. Shit, Heather, I don't have anything against Martha Dunstock. You don't have anything for her either. Come on, it'll be very. The note will give her shower nozzle masturbation material for weeks. That's our introduction to the four main protagonists. You know, there's the phrase, kids can be so cruel. <laughs> and kids on the verge of adulthood can be even crueler. <laughs> I think that's what uh, Daniel Waters was going for, as much as he was a fan of the John Hughes movies. They missed an essential truth about high school that I think Heather's captures, which is the ruthless, blood-curdling cruelty. Right. There is a Lord of the Flies, kill or be killed ethos taking place in the hallways of American high schools. Right. There always has been. It's just part of us as human beings. We're not very advanced. We're essentially a bunch of mud-slicked pigs scrabbling over each other's backs trying to achieve a perch from which we can spit down broken teeth upon our fellow piglets. Yeah, yes, though, you know, that could be said about any office structure as well. Well, uh, not ours. An el- <laughs> What are you trying to say? (laughs) Wow. I'm saying that that there is that. uh, You heard it here first, folks. I don't know. I've been blogging about it for weeks. People don't really know where we work together in a company here. And apparently my description seemed to hit the spot for Chris. You don't know what it's like out there. Alex, do you know what she did to me? Anyway. Well, but I would say that I agree with you 100%. And I think high school movies, again, all of which are lovely. Like, I particularly love Better Off Dead. Savage Steve Holland. Savage Steve Holland, right. He is a, he's worthy of a deep, deep dive. But a lot of those movies are about how difficult it is to be in high school. And from the main character's point of view, as trite as that sounds, but this one does blow it out a little bit further and makes it about the cruelty and and in some ways the reason why people become so cruel, which I think made it unique at the time. I think it's, you know, it's paved the way for a lot of things to do that since then. Yeah, I think you're right. I think that... Heathers, which really is about, for the filmmakers, the triumph of inexperience and naivete over savvy and experience, which Mm -hmm. I think is such a great and instructive lesson and so ironic, given that the subject matter is high school, where we're told at the time, you have got to achieve, win, win, get good grades, participate in all your extracurriculars, all the things I didn't do. Yeah, but look where you ended up. You're at the top of the perch. Took a long time. Hurling all those teeth down on the rest of us. It's not really pitched to the reality of high school the way that a John Hughes movie is, which I think was sort of something that like we wanted to recognize ourselves in the mm-hmm. John Hughes world and be told that our romantic and friendship-related, parent-related teenage stuff was worthy of being up on the big screen. But the conclusion of the John Hughes movie is always wrapped up in a bow as pink and bright as any that ever appeared on a Molly Ringwald hairstyle. Well, because it is about growing up, and I think there's something that has to be optimistic about you as an individual. You You have to become a little bit more self-actualized, get through these difficult, emotional, trying times, and then you grow up. So many of those movies, again, unlike this, are just about getting over that hump, whether it's first love or what you want to be when you grow up. A very discreet, one difficult problem that once you get over it, you're like, ah, now I'm ready to be an adult. Among the many things that are great, I think that it gets parents right in such a funny way through Veronica's parents, who are hilariously portrayed. Jennifer Rhodes plays Veronica's mom, and she really steals most of the scenes she's in. I mean, she looks so familiar to me. And then, of course, I look, and it's like she's got one of those careers that starts in 1971 and continues to the present day. She's in Grace and Frankie right now. And 
the guy who plays her dad, I want to figure out who that is. William Court. Damn, or as could. Bill Court. He changed his name. William Phelps Greer III. Guess it's kind of hard as an actor if you're going to go in with William Phelps Greer III. I don't know. If you want to play a lot of effete English gentlemen, I think yes. anything when you add the third at the end of it, yeah. you know, you're, you're practically there. He was an actor known for Heathers, Ghost, and Elvira, Mistress of the Dark. Not a bad career, if <laughs> no. you ask me, Chris. Uh, died young. Well, well, he was yeah. born in 1936. You know, a lot of uh, a lot people of people in this, in this movie. movie. Anyway, I want to play a little clip of Veronica's parents, and it's essentially what's brilliant about it is it's the same scene that's repeated two or three times with just subtle differences. Hey, take a break, Veronica. Sit down. So, what was the first day after Heather's suicide like? I don't know. It's okay, I guess. Terrible thing. So, will we get to meet this dark horse prom contender? Maybe. God damn, will somebody tell me why I smoke these damn things? Because you're an idiot. Oh, yeah, that's it. You too. Um, great pate, but I'm going to have to motor if I want to be ready for that funeral. And in every scene that the parents appear is just a variation on that. As a parent, do you feel this is an anti-parent film? No, I don't think any of it is anti-anything. I think the brilliant thing about the screenplay is it doesn't try to place blame. It just has a jaundiced view towards everything. There isn't an institution in the movie that doesn't possess some blame. I think you're 100% Except right. human kindness towards each other, really, which is the only unfettered moments that are allowed to exist. Through Veronica, we see the only real person-to-person -person kindness. And because Winona Ryder is such a freak, she's a phenomenal actor and capable of a great many things. And I think those scenes where she's with her former friends, she imbues those with a real sense of, like niceness and togetherness. So yeah, the parents are incompetent. The administration and the school teachers are all incompetent. But I'll tell you, with the parents specifically, she, Veronica, calls them out and is like, what are you doing? How are you allow allowing this? Yes. But then the mother actually has a pretty quick and pretty reasonable, I wish I could remember what the exact words were, but she's like, all we want is to be treated like human beings, not to be experimented on like guinea pigs or patronized like bunny rabbits. I don't patronize bunny rabbits. Treated like human beings? Is that what you said, little Miss Voice of a Generation? Just how do you think adults act with other adults? You think it's all just a game of doubles tennis? When teenagers complain that they want to be treated like human beings, it's usually because they are being treated like human beings. Yeah, well, I guess I picked the wrong time to be a human being. Well, you will live. What separates this movie and the writing of it, because you're right, every institution is up for a certain amount of blame. But on the other hand, the parents are ultimately humanized. And even as silly as the, the scenes are, the repetitive scenes are, you do get a sense that like, Veronica has a good relationship with her parents, that they love her and she loves them. I don't think it's anything as trite as, as parents just don't understand. These parents don't want to understand. They want to exist in their blissfully ignorant cloud tier. In the modern parenting sense, these parents would be trying to understand Veronica. Right. They would be trying to dialogue with Veronica. These parents, the mother is just blissfully in pursuit of a perfect pate. And the father is just a dunderheaded sweater sporting nincompoop. But with a pretty good 
relationship with his daughter. Yes, so. I mean, if you call the, the mindless recitation of the exact same dialogue over and over again a relationship. No, I mean, it's an inside joke that they seem to share and they smile at each other. I don't think that's played for warmth. That's played for, look how ridiculous this is. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. I don't actually communicate. Well, I think that there is a little bit of communication. She turns the television off and Veronica's like, are you crazy? Like, yeah. look what's going on here. I don't know. It's interesting that you viewed it that way. You know what it is? It also relatively recently saw Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. <laughs> I forgot about that. And I know Roald Dahl is your, mm-hmm. one of your favorites. Yes. It was not about bad children. It was about oh. bad parents. Well, that's every Roald Dahl. Yeah. And I saw a little bit of that here, but I did think that it went deeper than that because that itself can be simple. Sure. Another brilliant piece of casting in this movie is Glenn Shaddix, who plays the priest who presides over all of the funerals here. And he also is in Beetlejuice, which Winona Ryder had completed, but had not yet been released at the time that this movie Uh was shooting. He's great in in Beetlejuice as Otho, I think his name is. He's the (laughs) designer who dabbles in the paranormal. With uh, Catherine O'Hara, With Catherine O'Hara. I mean, that is a great movie. I I love Beetlejuice. There's a great piece of screenwriting that that we'll watch right here where most of the main characters are kneeling in front of Heather Number One's coffin after her quote-unquote suicide. And these are all internal monologues. I blame not Heather but rather a society that tells its youth that the answers can be found in the MTV video games. We must pray that the other teenagers of Sherwood, Ohio, know the name of that righteous dude who can solve their problems. It's Jesus Christ, and he's in the book. Oh God, this is a tragic thing and sometimes I have a hard time dealing with it and stuff. Please send Heather to heaven and all that. Dear God, please make sure this never happens to me because I don't think I can handle suicide. Fast early acceptance into an Ivy League school and please let it be Harvard. Amen. Jesus God in heaven, why'd you have to kill such hot snatch? It's a joke, man. Jeez, people are so serious. Hail Mary who aren't in heaven, pray for all the sinners. So we don't get caught. Another joke, man. I prayed for the death of Heather Chandler many times. And I felt bad every time I did it, but I kept doing it anyway. Now I know you understood everything. Praise Jesus. Hallelujah. Hi, I'm sorry. Technically, I did not kill Heather Chandler. But hey, who am I trying to kid, right? I just want my high school to be a nice place. Amen. That's so bitchy. Among the many excellent, excellent actors that are just in that one scene, obviously Glenn Shaddix as the father, Father Ripper, by the way, is his name. Patrick Laborteau plays Ram, one of the two main jocks, who will later be found in a... In flagrante. In flagrante. Well, well no, post-flagrante, post-flagrante nude gay suicide. Lizanne Falk plays Heather McNamara. She's the one who has the lines. Sometimes I have a hard time with things like this. I think she's fantastic in this. Kim Walker is Heather Chandler, who's dead in the coffin. Shannon Doherty, I think one of her first film roles as Heather Duke, Winona Ryder, and Jeremy Applegate. Now, bit of a downer. Ironically, Jeremy Applegate, who plays Peter Dawson, says that he doesn't think he could ever handle suicide. And tragically, the actor did commit suicide. Kim Walker, who plays Heather Chandler, also died tragically young at 32 of 
a brain tumor in another weird bit of connective irony in that she utters the line, did you have a brain tumor for breakfast? Yeah. Really unfortunate because both of them were such personable and likable actors in this movie. Yes. And Jeremy Applegate particularly had such a unique and specific look that he probably could have continued to work for many, many years. And Kim Walker is great. She was dating Christian Slater at the time that they made this movie. What it goes to for me is just how fucking good the screenplay is. Mm -hmm. And it's just razor sharp and tight. Glenn Shaddix's opening, a, a short uh, paragraph, but there is so much, so much to unpack in there in terms of insincerity, not knowing what he's talking about. Trying to be cool. Yeah, all of that. The attempt to try and connect, but so misguided. I think that's going back into the parents and all of the authority figures. And of course, this exists today. Didn't we just see a couple weeks ago, there was a viral video of a newscast in the Midwest that tried to use millennial speak to speak to a younger generation of news viewers. And of course, it went disastrous. Basically, it was oh, right, like the yeah. Glenn Shaddock scene right there. <laughs> to me, all the authority in the movie is coming from that sort of place. They're yeah. bumbling, they're inept, they're attempting to connect, but we can't really climb above the muck of societal life and the institutions we've created and surround ourselves with. But he's got this beating heart underneath it that cares and wants it to work out. That's the saving grace of all the great nihilistic satirists. Yeah. They care. Everybody, even the people who seem best and kindness, like, I don't know if she's the drama teacher or English teacher. By the end, the grief things, you see that it has more to do with her own displaying of openness comes out as just as insincere. She's the one that says the decision whether or not to kill oneself is the most important <laughs> a teenager can make. It's so fucking good. Here's just a quick clip after the first suicide. Any other principal would take the same position. Keep things business as usual. Heather Channel is not your everyday suicide. She was very popular. Come on, Paul. If I let these kids out before lunch, the switchboard would light up like a Christmas tree. I must say I was impressed to see that she made proper use of the word myriad in her suicide note. I find it profoundly disturbing that we're told of the tragic destruction of youth and all we can think to talk about is adequate morning times and misused vocabulary words. Oh, Christ. We must revel in this revealing moment. Look, I suggest that we get everybody together both students and teachers in the cafeteria, and just talk and feel together. Thank you, Miss Fleming. You call me when the shuttle lands. Now, is this Heather the cheerleader? That would be Heather McNamara. Damn. I'd be willing to go half a day for a cheerleader. That's John Engel as the principal. Interesting full cast and crew note on John Engel. He was the acting teacher at both Hollywood High School and Beverly Hills High School from 1955 to 1984. So during that time, between those two schools in Los uh -huh. Angeles, he had people like Richard Dreyfus, Albert Brooks, Julie Kavner, Lorraine Newman, David Schwimmer, Nicolas Cage. Anybody who was anybody in Hollywood in those like 40 years was came through his, his students. So he decided to become an actor only after retiring. And the casting director of the film says that they all just tried to hire him as much as possible for these <laughs> great roles. And he is so good yeah. uh, in these few scenes as the principal. Who's the woman who plays... The hippie teacher? The hippie teacher. Miss Fleming? Is it Miss Fleming? Uh, Pauline Fleming, played by Penelope Milford. I don't find, where is she? I don't see her. 
she was getting this. Oh, there she is. Uh, she was in Night of the Lawyers. Ooh, Night of the Lawyers. That sounds like a that movie. Is, <laughs> let's see what the logline of that I'm is. I presume that's a comedy. I'm sure that's that's just as biting of a satire as Heather's is. Can you read me the description? They are armed. They are dangerous. They are lawyers. A hardworking emergency room doctor <laughs> is being harassed by a firm of nasty lawyers. Actually, it says a firm on nasty mm. lawyers, but I'm going to assume that I'll give them a bit of that. Yeah. A firm of nasty lawyers. An encounter with a friendly alien gives the doctor the power to vaporize people and to take on this firm of unscrupulous lawyers. I'm sure that this was like financed by the Republican Party. Being like, yeah, doctors are great and they have to deal with all of this like malpractice because <laughs> lawyers just want to suck it. In. Yeah, it's a little lazy, I think <laughs> is what you're saying. Very lazy. 4.3 on IMDb. She didn't do much after 97, but remains alive. To speak about the screenplay, Daniel Waters was a 25-year-old first-time screenwriter literally working in a video store, as he says in one of the featurettes on the available only in the UK 30th anniversary Blu-ray, which we'll get into why that is in a few moments. Um, and he wrote at first a 200 page magnum opus, three hour plus screenplay for the Stanley Kubrick of high school movies. We thought, well, Kubrick has done politics and he's done this and he's done that, but he hasn't done high school. His aspiration, even though he's a little bit bashful about it now, it was really to get the screenplay to Stanley Kubrick and have Kubrick agree yes. to direct it. And for him and for the director, Michael Lehman, this all occurred in such a moment of incredible opportunity where these guys literally went from Michael Lehman, the director literally went from directing a student film at USC to directing a feature film. And this guy sold his very first screenplay ever. Most of the people involved in the big creative, they've all worked on a lot of movies and a lot of TV shows since then. They all to a person say, this is the best thing I ever worked on. Michael Lehman says, you know, I certainly never got another script that was better than Heather's. Which just goes to show you, I mean, this is a guy who's probably been working for 30, 35 years in the business. And this was their first movie, which is so insane that it was so good and so tight and focused. Michael Lehman was saying in one of the special features that not only was it the best script, but everybody had such a great feeling and, and was so jazzed by the script and the story and wanting to do this project that they all put their best work into it. Which I thought was such an interesting quote because it implies that most often people don't do that. Look, it's a job like anything else. Yeah. And sometimes you do it better. That's a certain amount of self-awareness and I'm sure that everybody would probably cop to it. One of the things we try to do is I always want to try to find a version of the movie that has a lot of making of features and other things of quality so you can hear the filmmakers and the cast or whomever talk about how the movie came to be. And there isn't a DVD copy available in the States of Heather's that contains all of the things that are contained on this UK only 30th anniversary DVD in which they did a brand new restoration of the film. And it's got a ton of amazing extras. I learned so much watching the featurettes on this movie and I've watched tons of featurettes on tons of movies. But this one was so instructive, I think because it was all of their first experience. They all talk about it in a very specific way that I found almost moving in a way and also really useful for people to think about. He has a good quote about his first time screenwriting effort. He said, quote, to me, I was just completely naive to everything. I thought, okay, you write a script then it gets made into a movie and you do whatever you want. And I think that's something that a lot of people don't teach you, that one of the most powerful forces in the world, especially when you're a writer that's just starting out, is naivete. Because he says he would then go on, if you look at his subsequent credits, he then had this thing happen.
happened to him, he tells a lot of writers who ask him for advice, don't sell out until you have to. His screenplay circulated around the studios and it was identifiably brilliant and identifiably different and he identifiably had a original voice. But he tells the story that most of the time, 99.999% of the time, what happens is the studio executive takes your script, reads it, and puts it in a desk drawer and says, okay, great, we'll never make that movie. However, I do have this Bruce Willis vehicle, Hudson Hawk here. Can you do a polish on that? They want to co-opt your talent and use it on something they perceive to be really good. And that's indeed what happened to him after Heathers, as he says. He was lucky enough that the way it came together was such that a studio which was New World Pictures, was looking for edgy material and that Denise DeNovi was tasked with, like, go out and find some new original voices that are going to push the envelope here. And she shared an agent with both the screenwriter and Michael Lehman, the eventual director. And it did happen. That, that proposal was made to him as they shopped this around, by the way. They, they, they did say to him several times, we're never going to make this, but we want to hire you to do this instead. Right. The movie he made after this, he his next project was The Adventures of Ford Fairlane. Andrew Dice Clay vehicle directed by Rennie Harlan, which, you know, let's cast our minds back to 1989-1990. I can understand why that would, at the time, be perceived as something that had the chance to be very successful, not only for like where Rennie Harlan was in his career, but, you know, Dice was a pretty big deal around then. And of course, the movie is a pretty legendary bomb. He wrote Heathers, his first movie, then The Adventures of Ford Fairlane. Then he wrote Hudson Hawk, which is the Bruce Willis vehicle, also directed by Michael Lehman. Now, this, this same thing happened to Michael Lehman. So you have this success. Now, again, Heathers wasn't a box office success, but it was a critical success, and it was perceived as a commodity. The people involved were perceived as a commodity that Hollywood could then bring into vehicles like The Adventures of Ford Fairlane, Hudson Hawk, Demolition Man, Batman Returns, right? and try to make these things good. I don't know, Batman Returns, I, I haven't seen that in a long, long time. That's the Catwoman one. That's the Catwoman, Penguin. Is that a good Batman? Yeah, I mean, I, it, I it's love a Tim it. Burton it's a Tim, I was gonna say, yeah. it's Tim Burton, you know, depending on your opinions of Tim Burton. Well, he is credited with the screenplay and the story by Daniel Waters and Sam Hamm. I'd have to see that one again. He's just a fascinating case of someone who just completely knocked it out of the park the very first time and then had a fairly long career, but never again wrote anything like this. He's pretty funny in some of the pieces about giving advice to writers now, and he, he's unsparing about using his own experience to illustrate the pitfalls. Bullcast and Crew is brought to you by Two Different Guys on a Bench, a new comedy series from American Vandal star Ryan O'Flanagan. Two Different Guys on a Bench, where Ryan talks to Ryan on a bench. We keep the comedy simple, folks. Two Different Guys on a Bench videos can be found now on Facebook at Chuckler Comedy. Like and follow Chuckler for the latest and greatest short-form comedy videos. Chuckler, original comedy delivered daily. He has such an incredible ear for, well, it's not even an ear because he made it up, and that's, I think, one of the great things about the movie and why it stands the test of time. Unlike Fast Times, which used actual lingo from the time, mm -hmm. he made up all this stuff. He made up, well, he didn't make up What's Your Damage. He got that famously. From some, he was a camp counselor, yes. right, from one of his charges. And he had like a six-year-old who used to say, what's your damage? And he remembered that his whole life and put it in the movie. Fuck me gently with a chainsaw. Um, a lot of these other hilarious sort of things. It's so very, 
he he came up with those, and that gives it this timelessness. One of the wonderful things about this movie is it's a satire, and everything is pushed as as mm-hmm. I think it was Lehman who put it just a little bit. And so having its own language that you have to learn to understand makes perfect sense. I think that's also why it's such an excellent high school movie. It is theatrical. It is overly stylized in places. That's what I think high school is like when you're there and you're experiencing it. Every day you go, it was with dread that I approached each day. And as the doors opened, it was just like a thing to be survived for the day. It is like a drama happening to you every day, a heightened drama because you're a teenager. He also said that he likes it when characters, even the stupid characters, speak as though they were given an extra 10 minutes to come up with a good line. I like the dialogue to be elevated. You can say it's Shakespeare or it's Turner classic movies, but I'm the last of the anti-naturalistic bent when it comes to screenwriting. And that too helped him accomplish this. The lines are so good up and down. The throwaway lines are amazing. I want to play one line that makes me laugh every single time. This scene begins with Veronica and Heather number one going to a convenience store. And listen to the little introductory bit of dialogue that Heather yells from the car as Winona is about to go in BQ or plain? BQ. You gonna pull a super chug with that? No, but if you're nice, I'll let you buy me a slushie. I see you know your convenience speak pretty well. Yeah, well, uh, I've been moved around all my life. Dallas, Baton Rouge, Vegas, Sherwood, Ohio. There's always been a snappy snack shack. Any town, any time, to pop a ham and cheese in the microwave and feast on a turbo dog. Okay, so to write on a page, Heather Chandler uh-huh. from Car, corn nuts, to have Veronica say, BBQ or plain, and then have Heather Chandler say, BBQ with such disgust yeah. and malice. It just slays me every time. Yeah. <laughs> There's so much contained in that. And it's just three simple lines of dialogue. Yeah. Why is that so brilliant? Uh, it's the specificity and the <laughs> idea of like, she will not have anything plain. <laughs> what the hell, what the hell kind of question but is it that? It also implies you, like, of course you know this, but of course you don't know something as mundane as your preference for barbecue or plain corn nuts, but her dis- withering She disgust. also knows that like the, the two flavors that are going to be on the corn nuts in the super <laughs> snack shop uh, sorry, the Snappy Snack Shack. Snappy Snack <laughs> snappy Shack. Snappy Snack Shack. Uh, the same as uh, as JD puts it, they're the same all over the country. Look at the sign on the Snappy Snack Shack, which I assume is created for the movie. Yeah. Uh, the snapping fingers, the the immediacy of what it is. And then the Corn Nuts line pays off brilliantly about 15 to 20 minutes after this scene when they do hand Heather the poisoned drink and she drinks it and her very last word while choking are corn nuts. And then she falls through a glass coffee table. (laughs) The darkness of the script is so brilliant. And all of them say, there's no way in hell this movie would ever get made now. And it's part of why I think some of the subsequent iterations have not worked out. Because in the worldview of the movie, the attempt to commodify something that's genuine, that's original, has, of course, ironically happened with the movie itself. Mm-hmm. So we have Heather's The Musical, or Had, and they had a TV show recently that was scrapped mm-hmm. because we're living in a time when, unfortunately, we're living in a satirical nightmare every day. 
And so school shootings and other things of that sort really killed the opportunity for the scripted series to ever see the light of day on television. Although it did in in Europe, I guess, because they had already pre-sold it. And I was reading some reviews that were saying that it was was very bad. Who knows, as the time changes, people are going to look at it differently. And nothing can be as satirically dangerous or anything like that when it is, I guess nothing's ever anything. But but usually taking a piece of IP or or rebooting or redoing something, especially when you're trying to go for that edge, of course, you're never going to be able to recreate it. What's ridiculous is this DVD is not available in the United States. I actually wrote to the company, I wrote to Arrow, British company, that put this out. Um, And special shout out to our colleague, Patrick, who I was able to hand this to and say, hey, I can't play this on my Blu-ray player because it's some kind of region thing. Can you figure that out? Anyway, I wrote to a gentleman named Clint, who is in the public relations department, and I said, please tell me that this DVD, this 30th anniversary reprint of the movie and all these great features is coming out of the United States. And the answer, no. Another studio has the rights to the film in the U.S., Uh, and there are no plans to release this in the U.S. I don't want to sound like old man shakes fist at clouds. And yet... And yet, this is part of the problem of the time that we're living in. And I hope that something like the Criterion channel that debuts, I think, next week. Now, Criterion, all the Criterion editions of the Blu-rays and the DVDs feature all, all of these different extras. I hope that on the channel, they make that stuff available. Mm-hmm. Because I understand that viewing habits change and we're all much prefer to stream. But it seems ridiculous to me that no one struck a deal to stream, A, the beautiful transfer that's on this disc, the currently available version of the movie that's streaming on Amazon. It doesn't Mm -hmm. look anywhere near as good as the stuff on this DVD looks. But also, all of these great interviews, which to me, and maybe I'm just, maybe this is where I've aged out of the demo. I want to watch all this stuff about a movie I love. I soak it all up. I want to hear all about how it was made. Um, And I feel like we're going to lose that in this streaming world because no one really makes room for that. I'm actually sort of surprised that this had never, that this is not on Criterion. I don't know what the criteria Uh, for Criterion is. What's the criteria, Criterion? But I I would think that that, if not yet. I mean, if not this, what? Yeah. My God. So many little throwaway things. Another throwaway thing. The radio show that um, the other Heather calls into, which is called Hot Probs. (laughs) That's just so good. God, that's good. Um. He has a great anecdote about some scenes that were cut out. But an indication of Daniel Waters' brilliantly skewed mind was one scene in his 200-page version of the screenplay. You know, there's the scene after, I think, the funeral where Veronica goes in and is talking to the other remaining Heathers. And then she walks fully clothed into the shower. Yes. And she sort of just goes under and they're like, Heather, what are you doing, Veronica? He also had a scene originally where the other girls all follow her into the shower and also step under the shower heads fully clothed and that the nerds and the geeks are spying on the girls a la Porky's. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Except this is finally the moment where they get to spy on the girls in the shower and the girls are fully, fully clothed. clothed. That's, oh, that is a brilliant little twist yeah. of the tropes that he was talking about with the high school movies. We didn't play it, but the beginning of that very scene that you're referring to, uh, because it comes right after the principal and everybody talking about uh, how much time they're going to get off. The first line Heather McNamara says is, oh, I can't believe we only get off one <laughs> lousy hour. <laughs> that the cynicism, it's come, like from down to the top, it, is, it has already infected the and children that all they care about, their best friend and, you know, the complicated uh, relationship being what it is, that they only get one hour off. And isn't Shannon Doherty macking down on a chicken leg? Yeah. In the, it's so good. Like now that Heather's dead, she can finally eat. Yes. Let's talk about casting, Chris. Yes. 
I cannot say enough about Winona Ryder. I, the, to me, watching this again last night or the night before, it's just a revelation. She's a movie star. Yeah. She is an actor. I think she could have been a successful Hollywood actor in any era. Mm-hmm. 1920s, silent movies, the 60s, the 70s. She was a fully formed, fascinatingly complicated, layered person at 15, 16 years old. I don't know about you at 15 or 16 years old, but I was a mess. No, this is pretty much... That's just what you were like? Pretty much like, like this. I mean, obviously, I've had a, bought a different hoodie since then, but... <laughs> God, <laughs> she's so that. good. Yeah, no, she's fantastic. Do you ever see uh, Age of Innocence? Sure, Scorsese. I love that movie. It's such a, you know, and a lot of people, I don't, I guess I don't really know what most people think about it, but people don't remember it so well, partially because I think, because it's Scorsese and it's set in uh, Victoria, New York. You don't think these two things go together, yeah. And yet uh, both Daniel Day-Lewis, who's obviously great and everything, but she, Winona Mm -hmm. Ryder, plays uh, the part of his sort of, let's say, long-suffering wife who at the climax of the film, spoiler for whenever's, Mm -hmm. uh, (laughs) for a novel by, I think, Henry James, but- uh, her performance in that, and there's a, a perform, there's a scene towards the end where he, where she, appeals to him in a way that, you kind of realize she had knew more about what was going on than she had. Mm. Yes, and you see all of it in her just as much as you do with Daniel mm-hmm. Day Lewis. It is heartbreaking, and yet you can tell that she knows what she's doing. She's not just mm-hmm. a naif. It's it's fantastic, and yeah. I think it made me look. That made me look at her very differently. This because it is a high school type. And it is, she becomes, I think the character she plays is like the 90s writ large. I think more so than Janine Garofalo in Reality Bites. Well, the 80s. But I meant like, because this is the beginning. This yeah, is almost like yeah. the end of the 80s getting ready for the 90s. Yeah. Uh, and yet, like you said, she does so much with it. It is not a, a simple or easy performance, uh, even though it, it can seem like that because everything around, there's so much going on, and she is such a, a rock-solid center to it. You know, like many actors, she comes from a, a crazy background. She grew up in a commune in Northern California with no electricity. Timothy Leary was her godfather. <laughs> uh, her parents were friends with Allen Ginsberg. All these kinds of crazy things. The reason she selected, I think her real last name is Horowitz. Yeah, her name's Winona Laura Horowitz. Uh-huh. The reason she's called Winona Ryder, apparently, is that when an agent or someone called her after her first movie, which was Lucas in 1986, mm-hmm. they called and said, how do you want your name to appear in the credits? And she suggested Ryder, R-Y-D-E-R, as her father's Mitch Ryder album was playing in the background. Mitch Ryder is like a, I think, a Detroit rock and roll R&B uh-huh. star of the 70s and 80s. So. Yeah, don't overthink it. <laughs> no, Winona Ryder, man. One of the things that's so funny with movies and anything, really, any any act that involves actor, anything that involves acting I don't want to dip fully into the alternative casting yet, but like Winona Ryder was not the first choice for anybody to be in this movie. Yet it's one of those things, and I know it's trite to say, but I can't imagine anyone else playing Veronica and delivering the depth which Winona Ryder does. The others, as we've talked about, Shannon Doherty is great and has always been great at this kind of thing. There's a well-trod anecdote that Shannon Doherty was a ruthless perfectionist, even at age 15, 16, 17 years old, and would be on set and just doing the work, always showing up like kind of a little too-too in the way that I think we've now known Shannon Doherty to have become over the years. There's a very famous anecdote that after the movie was screened for the cast and crew, she walked out and said, you guys never told me this was a comedy. Yeah. There's an oral history that I think Entertainment Weekly yes. put out a couple of years ago. And I was reading it. And uh, it's funny because of the way that it's set up. You know, you have little quotes from everybody. Yes. 
And you, Shannon Doherty's in there. I think this is many years after the fact. She has changed, been through a lot, and yet everybody is still kind of taking digs at her yeah. uh, and making fun of that specifically. They're saying, like, you know, she didn't quite get it. But, you know, yeah. it just goes to show you don't really have to get it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Necessarily. Yes. You play it truthfully. I mean, Winona has to get for it. The, uh, for the satire. Winona has to get mm-hmm. it. Like, actors at, in that those roles, Slater has to get it. Liz Ann Falk has to get it. You know, her Heather is so imbued with good intentions, you know, and she really does convey that both in her, that little bit of the internal monologue we heard. And then later in her kind of heartbreaking phone call to the radio station where she can't think of her name and goes through Madonna because there's a Madonna poster on the wall. She's a literalist. If it's it's right there in front of her. (laughs) And she says her name is Madonna. Then she says her name is Heather, realizes she gave her real name and casting about desperately uh, sees of course, what she has in her room, which is a caged bird. And she says her name is Tweety. Yeah. Uh, God, and then so good. When she is trying to kill herself later, spoiler for 1988's Heathers, I actually think <laughs> there's something like sweetly, awkwardly, I don't know. The fact that the three Heathers really are differentiated mm-hmm. and that she is the only one that kind of, you know, one dies, one becomes another version of the same, the new yes. the new evil king. The fact that she ends up kind of getting out by having some self-realization, I thought was very, yeah. very sweet, especially the way Veronica handled it. I like that scene a lot. Lizanne Falk, another funny story is, of course, everyone is a teenager in the movie, except Lizanne Falk, right. who lied about her age. At the time, she was 23 and living with her boyfriend across the street from one of the locations that they were using. And she remembers uh, the issue, which will be familiar to any actor, any female actor, certainly, of the need to constantly lie about your age and be younger than you really are. Um, And she told him she was 19 and she was really 23. And she lived a life. She was a model. She was a child model. She had a book published about her. Yep. And it wasn't until they kind of went out for a dinner prior to shooting as kind of a getting to know you thing that they said, oh, we're going to be shooting at such and such. She said, oh, that's, oh, that's so weird. I live right across the street with my boyfriend. And they were like, you, what about your parents? What do your parents think yeah. about that? And she actually does give it a certain thing, I think, because of her age difference. Yes. Kim Walker, as we talked about, rest in peace. Jeremy Applegate, rest in peace. Glenn Shaddix, rest in peace. He also died. I don't know if you read the description. He, he, had, he had mobility issues. He fell, injured his head and died. His entire house burned down some years before that. Yeah. It sounded like a, a difficult final couple of years for a really funny, capable actor who was a larger than life presence in any movie that he was ever in. Alternative casting, which is kind of interesting. Put that one back. The studio's first choice was Justine Bateman. The screenwriter and the director kind of weren't feeling that. The screenwriter also wanted Jennifer Connelly. Right. Who uh, turned it down. Who turned it down. I love Jennifer Connelly, but I, I think it would have been very... With alternative casting, if it had been somebody different, it would have been a different movie. Yeah. And, you know, nobody would have been able to bring what Winona Can't brought. imagine, like, the kooky diary narratives, the the, the like, voice Jennifer in her head. That's she's just, not kooky. Is no, what it, You know, it would no. have been a different thing. It would have been somebody that would have fit more easily with yes. the Heathers. Yeah. And it would be more about the differentiation. Whereas with Winona Ryder, you almost wonder how she got in with them. Exactly. I was going to say, when I think about Heathers abstractly, I think of it as a story of the four most popular girls in the school. But I forgot that Veronica is this kind of like, how did she end up with them? And she has the great line kind of explaining that Christian Slater's character, JD, says, you know, I don't like your friends either. And she says, well, it's kind of like we work together and our job is being the most popular girls in school. 
you can see how she fits in with them. But she also still has these tendrils of these other friendships, which are played real. Heather Graham turned down the Heather Chandler role. And Michael Lehman, the director, has a very funny story. Heather Graham's father was an FBI agent. Oh, <laughs> like extremely strict law and order type. And he told Michael Lehman that their daughter would never appear in a script that was as satanic as this one. I didn't realize that Heather Graham had come from such a conservative background yeah. because uh, well, she turned it down. Then I guess she was offered or actually cast as Heather McNamara. Oh, was she? I didn't know that. But then her mom wouldn't let her. Oh, interesting. And again, it sounded to me, this whole thing seemed so satanic, so wrong. It's like, I don't want you even playing <laughs> the relatively mm-hmm. uh, benign part. So just to go down the Winona FCAC rabbit hole for a minute, Beetlejuice and Heathers came out in the same year. Wow. That's pretty Big ridiculous. Year. And then Great Balls, Great Balls of, of Fire. Fire. She's great in that. Edward Scissorhands. I'm skipping over some of the lesser titles here. Mermaids, I haven't seen. Isn't that like an uber chick? Yeah, I mean, it's about Cher as a mom, single mom with two kids, Winona Ryder and Christina Wait, Ricci. there's no mermaids involved? There are no actual mermaids oh, involved. okay. I didn't know it was like a weepy. No, it's I think more they like, call it's that like a weepy. weepy. Is Cher good in it? Have yeah. you seen I mean, it? I, I You've seen see mermaids. It, yeah. yeah, and I loved it. Age of Innocence. Actually, I'm surprised that's so early, 93. So that's not so too. far after Heather. Here. Did you read the anecdote about the House of the Spirits? No. What's House House of the Spirits 1993? Based on a Isabel Allende novel. Oh yes. Great poster. Is that um is that what's his name? Yeah. So she works with Meryl Streep in this. And apparently at 19, she was pitching Meryl Streep on doing the sequel to Heather's. <laughs> Which was, was going like, to take place in Washington, D.C. In Washington, D.C. And I guess Meryl Streep would be the first lady, I think it was. Yeah, but was she going to be one? Was she going to be like the surviving Heather? I had the impression that. Or just another, that name, was another an, woman named Heather. Another, yeah. And that it Veronica, was not a continuation. It was a continuation that it was Veronica. Oh, it was goes Veronica. To, okay. Goes to Washington, D.C. And finds herself working with yet another Heather. Yeah. And Psychologically. Then I think, <laughs> they kill someone, don't they? Spoiler for a movie that was never made, uh, I think she ends up killing her. The screenwriter, Daniel Waters, says he he made a movie called Sex and Death 101. Yes. And Winona Ryder is in the movie. And she goes up to me and goes like, yeah, so uh, I talked to Meryl and she's on board. Yeah. <laughs> and he's like, what? She's like, for the, for the sequel. And he's like, Winona, there is no sequel. What are you yeah. talking about? She's like, oh, no, I, you know, I can just, I can just see that. that. You know what's funny about Winona? I sort of had the sense, and I wonder if you did this, when Stranger Things hit, right, and she was such a rev- revelation as Joyce Byers, it was kind of this moment where it felt like we collectively, like, rediscovered Winona Ryder and were reminded of how great she was. But then when you look at her IMDb credits, she's not gone anywhere. She certainly worked and has multiple movies in every year. Fewer of them are lead roles. I guess. I think. I don't know if that's because of the shoplifting thing. One way or the other, she was not doing a lot of lead roles up until then. Slater. It's hard to envision what a revelation this was at the time. This person came out seemingly fully formed as many people involved in the movie say, you know, he got a lot of flack at the time for sounding like Jack Nissel. And they were like, but that's what he sounds like. He'd been working for quite a long time prior to that as a child. The Name of the Rose being, I think, the biggest. Yeah. Who directed The Name of the Rose? Jean-Jacques Arnaud. I should yeah. see that again. I remember liking that very much. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite things is to read movie log lines, which just mm. seems so ridiculous. Uh, the log line for Name of the Rose, an intellectually nonconformist friar investigates a series of mysterious deaths in an isolated abbey. That's all you need to do to write a movie, Chris. I'll Just come up with one fucking sentence. I give it six weeks before this becomes an Amazon Prime series. Everybody loves murder mysteries. Brilliant. Just make it a freaking monk. Nonconformist friar. Yeah. I'm, you got me. Heather's, which he followed with Gleaming the Cube, which I cite often, which is one of those terrible 
Hollywood attempts to capitalize on youth culture. Although it was written by Michael Tolkien, who I have celebrated before. Yeah. Uh, but Gleaming the Cube is a particularly awful skateboarding movie that you should check out. Pump Up the Volume is another. Oh, I uh, love. I remember loving that movie. Uh-huh. I don't know if I would love it again now. I was reading about it. This is where premises can sound a little silly in the modern age, although oh, yeah. it does prefigure the internet. Podcast. Podcast. He would be a podcaster now. For people who don't know, it's the story of a guy who starts a pirate radio station and begins accruing fame and notoriety by his anti-establishmentarianism and ends up literally pursued by the FCC in off-road vehicles trying to track down his pirate radio station. And the movie ends with an audio collage of his fellow students who have now started their own pirate radio stations, Chris. I loved that movie when it came out. Yeah. I'm going to watch it again. I don't know if it holds up, but I remember loving it. Well, I'll tell you what I wonder if it holds up, but I certainly loved at the time was True Romance. Oh, I would think that would hold up. Great screenplay. Tony Scott. Tony Scott directed it. Tony Scott often says no one thinks he directed that movie. Because it, Quentin Tarantino is such a- It's such a thing. And he, was, he was such a thing then. Yeah. That, that movie came out. And I think it famously was a screenplay that Tarantino had written before he wrote and directed his first movie. And this was one of those things where it's like, well, what else you got in the drawer? I remember loving that. And I think specifically its conception of romance. Mm -hmm. They're cool and they're shooting everybody. And they're fucking all the time. <laughs> like, like, yeah, that's what that's what that must be. What having a girlfriend is like is that was my conception from physique to romance. Slater's another guy that hasn't gone anywhere, but just feels like he hasn't really been in the, the moment until. Until Mr. Robot, he had a role finally that caught up to his age. Well, why did he get to have a great. full head of brown hair? Well, I know how. <laughs> I'm just saying, why? Why? Why can like? I mean, my hair is going gray, and I spend a lot of. I'm not a person who suffers from any kind of like midlife crises of any kind. Okay, I'm not going to get a sports car. I'm not trading in my family. You know, I'm very content. <laughs> However, I would like my hair not to be going gray. And it seems like actors, like look at Christian Slater here in his IMDb photo. He gets to dye his hair and no one gives him a hard time about it. But if I dyed my hair, it'd be kind of ridiculous and pathetic. And so. Well, you don't know. You don't know his life. Of course you don't know what dying. his wife is telling him. No, but look at him. He no, looks he, good. But he does look good. But people are giving him a hard time all the time, I'm sure. People who are about what? to him. About dying his hair. Well, who's giving him a hard time? Uh, whoever would give you a hard time. No, because the people that would give me a hard time are people that like actually know me. Like if I showed up here in the office one day with like a robust head of brown hair, you guys would all be like, Whoa, did you get a look at Jason's hair? What the hell? No, first of all, like, no. I can't do that. But you know second, I mean? I'd have to go to another, I'd have to office, start over another whole life. I'm sure Rami Malek, when he first showed up. Yeah. I'm just like, saying, as an actor, you can dye your hair all the time and no one gives you a hard time. That's because you always That's use one the of the excuse. benefits. It's like, I'm not doing it I'm doing. A, I'm doing a, it's, it's for a, a role. It's a part. It's that's what I'm saying. So I'm saying this is how demented I am. I've actually thought that like, you know, well, maybe late in life, I'll take some acting classes and yeah. find that I have a particular talent for it. And then as such, I'll be able to dye my hair. Just do it. Just do it for the hair dyeing purposes. What do you Listen, think about careers have been built just on to the, do, yeah, just to sure, get hair another dyeing. shark in the tank. Just what we need. Just what we need. <laughs> Guess who is starting out? But I'll tell you, actually, I don't know if you've seen, there's a, a another Christian Slater role that I think was that recently that I thought was uh, you'd really love. I thought was in uh, The Wife. Did you? <laughs> Don't bait me. He's, is he in that? <laughs> he is in that. Oh my God. He is in that. Jesus. Um, so anyway, that's, uh, those are my casting notes. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the music. I really, really enjoyed this score, which is by David Newman. And it's almost comical when I looked him up. You've heard of Randy Newman, who is his cousin. Oh. But the family tree of composers is almost comical. Get a load of this. David Newman is the son of Hollywood composer Alfred Newman. 
He is the brother of composer Thomas Newman, composer Maria Newman, and the cousin of composer Randy Newman. He is also the nephew of composers Lionel Newman and Emil Newman, and first cousin once removed of musician Joey Newman. Does that prove nature or nurture? I don't know. I, mean, definitely well, I opened up the wiki page thinking like, well, there's no way he's related to Randy Newman because no. that would just be weird. And not only do we find that out, but there's like 15 other family members. <laughs> How the Newmans awesome. do not have a stranglehold on all composing work. It's a synth score. Yes. Right. So what they mean is there was no money. And since there was no money, you know, one guy in a room with three or four keyboards can approximate a score. Yet it's one of those things that works so, so well with that highly stylized design sense, the, the stylized dialogue. And David Newman talks about the first thing that he came up with was the theme that's used in the croquet scene. It has that sort of 80s reverby breathiness, but it also has like an emotional underpinning to it. It's not just silly and it's not just kitschy. It has some emotion to it. The heart that beats inside cynics. Because it is so much about an empty society around these poor kids. There's something that seems right about the artificiality of using a mm -hmm. synth. But just listening to it now or, and watching it last night, there's always been something kind of otherworldly, sort of tech futuristic about, about synthesizer sounds, which feels almost like a cold future that is ruining the human connection. Another thing David Newman says, he's like, you know, I don't know what we would have done if we had a budget. Like he probably would have got an orchestra <laughs> together because that's what you do, yeah. right? And it would have been a very different thing in the same way that we have alternative casting. David Newman talks about the first thing that he came up with once he knew he was going to be doing the movie was the theme that's used in the croquet scene. I'm just going to play a little bit of it here. It's just a great cue. I mean, it has that sort of 80s reverby breathiness, that Fairlight synthesizer feeling vibe. Um, but it also has like an emotional underpinning to it. It's not just silly and it's not just kitschy. It's not just overly stylized. It has some emotion to it. Yeah. And I think that the music actually in the movie it does have a lot of emotion throughout a lot of these scenes. And it's one of the places where that is always that underpinning. Like we were talking about the heart that beats inside most cynics. Um, the music here really provided a lot of that heart. And I think because it is so much about society and an empty society around these, these poor kids. Yeah. There's something about that seems right about the artificiality of using a mm -hmm. synth. Just listening to it now or, and watching it last night, it does seem like there's something, there's always been something kind of otherworldly, sort of tech futuristic about, um, about synthesizer sounds, which to me feels almost like a, like a cold future that is uh, ruining the human connection between these kids. Another thing David Newman says, he's like, you know, I don't know what we would have done if we had a budget. Like he probably would have got an <laughs> orchestra together because that's what you do, yeah. right? And it would have been a very different thing in the same way that we have alternative casting. Um, it would be a very different movie without this brilliant score. And I actually bought the score and I'm in, I was listening to it walking through the streets of New York on the way to work this morning. And it really is a fit to walk around in an urban environment and kind of hear this music and these cues. I just want to play another little one, which I thought was great. This is called um, You're Beautiful. I think this is from the scene um, in, the, uh, in the dining commons or the cafeteria where Winona says that to 
uh, one of the quiz, one of the people taking the quiz that Heather is taking. If you if you you win five million dollars, but aliens are going to blow up the Earth in two days, what do you do with the money or yeah. something? Anyway, it's another good cue. idea. I think it's a great score. I really enjoyed it. The other two musical features that are great, the movie opens and closes with two different versions of K Sera Sera. And the first opening version is by Sid Straw. contains that hyper realistic like things are slightly off kilter. It's like a Dutch angle in a lens or something. In the way, you're talking about the version, the way that it's recorded. And, yeah, yeah, and just the breathiness of it. And it's sort of like we're seeing the world through a slightly skewed version of this saccharine classic. It's of substance, but it's also slightly off. Whatever will be, will be. Case Ross, the um, giving up of control, ceding your individuality, that to me start to just change what that, uh, what that phrase means. Yes. Really enjoyed the music. I was surprised it wasn't something that I think of when I think of the movie. Right. Um, but I... I went down the rabbit hole of the music and was rewarded. Volcast and Crew is brought to you by Out of Jack's Mind, a new comedy short video series from Jack Plotnick, co-writer and director of the Sony Pictures feature film Space Station 76 and current recurring guest on Grace and Frankie and Z Nation. Out of Jack's Mind, like and follow at Chuckler Comedy on Facebook or Chuckler.com. Chuckler, original comedy, delivered daily. Let's talk about the production design. As we talked about with this script, everything, and in one of the making a featurette, somebody does say this, everything is pushed just a bit. It's so difficult to do satire well. Mm-hmm. It seems like it would be an easy thing. You think about what you're satirizing, you think about the components and exaggerate them. Mm-hmm. And yet, I think with film specifically, it just doesn't seem to always work. I think sometimes because the archness can take away from the actual story, you know. Well, they're trying too hard. They try too hard. And this is just such a case where everybody loved the project, so they were all bringing their A-game. It is not just a clinical exercise of of making fun of something. It also has an emotional center to it that goes very much into the design. When watching the making of featurettes and they would just show a moment and it would be beautiful to look at. Almost like every scene was its own potential Every frame has visual gems. To your point about the satire, someone in the featurette says... 
that with satire, when you create the world really effectively in terms of the way the rooms are set up and all that information that's imparted to the viewer, and when the actors have such a clear sense of who the character is, then you're playing it for real. Yeah. And when you do that, that's how you achieve the satire you're talking about. Shannon Doherty, by not knowing what the hell's, by not knowing what the hell's going on, she delivered. <laughs> she delivered. Totally to the point. Whatever movie she thought she was in, didn't really matter. Yeah. She gave a pitch-perfect satirical performance without knowing that's what she was doing. Yeah. It's so easy to screw that up. Lehman says at one point that he's like, look, there were times they would bring anything that was a little too far. And that's, of course, the job of the director to modulate that. Well, the production designer was a guy named John Hutman. And this was his first film as a production designer. He had previously worked on a movie that I love, To Live and Die in L.A., a Billy Friedkin movie. The costumes, the banners, the logo design for the high school, everything is so meticulous. One of the great things that I learned from these featurettes is... His um, art director at the time, Kara Lindstrom, for both of them, these were their first films in these key positions. Yeah. And between the two of them, they actually did a great job of explaining the difference between set decorator, art director, production designer. If you're like me and you have no idea what that is at the Academy Awards, well, here's a handy little primer. In the art department, the production designer is like in charge of the whole thing. And there's an art director and a set decorator. And the art director is responsible for drawings and construction and the set decorator is responsible for furnishings basically and the prop master takes charge of hand props things that the actors actually use so i'm at the head of the pyramid and the art director sort of draws and builds and the set decorator fills the space i was the art director but i was also the set decorator and typically the set decorator is in charge of his or her own department. And the set decorator is sort of working with and parallel with and for ultimately, but parallel with often the production designer. The art director is working for the production designer. So just remember this, that the when the Academy Awards are given out for art direction, it's to the production designer and the set decorator, okay? The art director I think of as kind of the vice president of art. It's a very, there's a lot of, there's a lot that goes into his or her world. Basically what I tell people is everything you see in a frame that's not an actor or a piece of clothing is the art department. That's a pretty good succinct description of the differences, which I think is gonna stay with me after watching this DVD, which again, you can't watch (laughs) listening here, unless you're listening in the UK, in which have at it. Actually, this is my own Luddite-ness because I'm probably the only geek that still has a Blu-ray player. But apparently, if I bought a new one, it's region-free. So That's now you can now. buy a DVD player that would that would have played this. The costumes are fantastic. The art direction is fantastic. The production design is incredible. The, the outfits they're wearing, she has a funny anecdote, Carol Lindstrom, about she did a slogan for the high school. Yes, two things about the high school. Do you see what the, the high school's mascot is? Yes. The Rottweilers, <laughs> which what... Rottweiler joke in 1988. What more unpleasant atmosphere could you be in? But secondly, yes, it was bus your trays. Yeah, They translated it into Latin, and that would be like the sort of slogan for the school. But when I put that into Google Translate, it was just bus. Uh, Uh, They they didn't have bus as a What is it in Latin? So bus your trays would be bus qui emuncta sunt vobis. Then I changed it to move your trays because I think move you is. You thought it, maybe. I like that you're trying various wording. Movere tum qui umuncta sunt. That's a bit wordy for a badge like circular logo. Yeah. 
she's like, we spent time doing that and coming up with the logo and putting that on something that's not even visible at yeah. any point in the movie. She uses that as an example of how in all the designers were. Yeah. That they had such an incredible script that to your earlier point, they all brought their A-game to do this right. Mm-hmm. And I think just the reality of any endeavor in Hollywood, and you're talking about people who worked in the in the crafts of the various departments, you're going from one show to the next. And it probably most of the time, you're not really engaged and invested in the show that you're working on because- or Let's say not engaged in quite the same not way. Not the same way. Because as, and there's an anecdote, I think in this one, where Hutman says specifically with a great screenplay, yep. a lot of the work is it's done. done. Because they give you details, Mm -hmm. which makes it easier, but it also makes you as the designer more excited because the more excited the screenplay writer is, the more excited it makes you. And there's sort of a self-perpetuating excitement around the project. Let's let the final note on this brilliant movie that will stand the test of time be the brilliant version of Que that closes the film over the end credits in a kind of mournful tone that I thought really fit. Okay, Chris, now we're going to move on to a new segment, This Day in TV Guide History. Matt, give us a snappy little musical sting intro. Hmm, what's on TV? What I have here in front of me is the actual TV Guide. Did you have TV Guide in your house? When I grew up, this came every week, and it was the week ahead's TV listings in convenient magazine form with a lot of hilarious ads like 13 records or tapes for only one cent and owing money to Columbia records or tapes for the rest of your life, which I still do. (laughs) Hilarious cigarette ads and other cultural ephemera. But this was the only way you knew what was going to be on TV. You consulted this guide and figured out what you were going to watch and when. Now, what I thought I would do is go back to this actual day in 1980, Thursday, at the time that it is right now, 4.25 p.m. Now, for me, Chris, I was a latchkey child. I would come home from school, let myself in, make myself a snack, and watch television until my mother came home at 6.30. Right. And these are some of the shows that would be on, and I thought some of the taglines were worth repeating. There was a show called Love American Style. An anthology, right? It was an anthology, and it has the hilariously 1980 storyline of Ray Wallstone as an executive evading alimony payments. Today, they would just ruin it because they'd probably focus, let's say, on the wife or the right. children, the children. starving. Snowflakes. How am I going to hide this money from my family. (laughs) Also at 3 p.m., Dinah and friends. Dinah and guest Alex Trebek present videotape coverage of the 1980 United States Ski Team Celebrity Invitational from Sun Valley. Celebrity skiers include Clint Eastwood and Cliff Robertson. Gilligan's Island has some of the best, worst storylines. I guess Gilligan's Island is one of those shows where all of the log lines jumped the shark before they even produced the series. (laughs) For example, a loose tooth filling turns Gilligan's head into a radio (gasps) receiver. I actually do remember that one. 
Partridge Family also on at the same time. Misery is played for laughs as Danny goes on a diet. Well, let's remember Danny was nine. So he was deemed too chubby by um, Ruben Kincaid. At 4.30, Electric Company was a big part of my life. Did you watch that show yes. growing up? But I was always disappointed if it didn't have the Spider-Mans. I always loved those live action. Yeah, Spider-Man live action Spider-Man. There. For me, it was always Via Alegre, which was a Spanish tinged kids program would lead into Electric Company. That was like a block of programming. Via Alegre. Matt, please find the Via Alegre theme song. Now, here's one of my favorite log lines of all time. 5.30, it's time for good times. Michael, Thelma, and JJ each have their own version of how their sofa caught fire. That's the Rashomon episode. Now, I've moved on to 7 o'clock. Now, 7 o'clock in the 80s used to be primetime. Like, you had real primetime evening shows were on at 7 o'clock. Before we had lamps and time. stuff, exactly. so you could we had stay to, awake in the dark. You had to get the whale oil lamp primed <laughs> up so you could watch the Waltons at 7. Here's a good Walton storyline. Olivia's aunt Rose and her grandchildren arrive from Baltimore, and it's soon apparent that the youngster's unruliness is the manifestation of deep-seated emotional problems. It's a bit heavier than uh, I remember. Like, what, are they cutting themselves and, like, burning cats? What the hell's going on at the Waltons? (laughs) Now, here's one of my favorites, Buck Rogers. I loved Buck Rogers. I loved Aaron Gray. I think last time Aaron Gray came up, I don't know if you remember when we were talking about, you know, her second career mm-hmm. as a sort of talent booker for conventions. She ran a stable of- And uh, I guess, yeah. I, I think still does. I think she's still Interesting, alive. good for her. But when reading about that, I also read a little bit about Gil Gerard. He struggled with uh, his weight. Did he? Like a lot. He was then on like Get Skinny reality show. Some like thing, oh, really? like he was so getting so weak. Well, after Buck Rogers or during the commercial break, you could have flipped over to America, You're Too Young to Die. A religion special. This is the actual description. The Reverend Jerry Falwell is joined by Senators Jesse Helms, Harry Byrd, and Robert Dornan in a tribute to America. Holy Christ. I would love to see the face of somebody looking at their watch and like, yes. And it's just like a tune over. Like, what are we going to call it? America, you're too young to die. (laughs) When you said that, I thought it was like, oh, this is going to be a Heather's tie-in. One hour about how suicide can lead to your death. Uh, Although at eight o'clock, you could have watched Runaway. A report on runaway teenagers. Remember when that was like a big deal in the 80s? Like, man, the kids are running away. Now nobody cares. Interestingly enough, sneak previews from Roger Ebert and Gene Siskel. Critics Roger Ebert and Gene Siskel show clips from movies they're embarrassed to admit they enjoyed. That sounds like what we do. We're not quite as revolutionary as we thought. Now we're at 11 o'clock at night. It's late. Your parents have gone to bed. You're staying up. You're watching stuff you shouldn't be watching. Right. Perhaps at 11 p.m. you would have turned over to the thriller on Channel 7. A writer, Peter Cushing, tries to convince a skeptical publisher about the uncanny behavior of felines by relating three chilling tales of terror. It's a anthology about horrifying feline behavior. It's called The Uncanny. Stars Ray Milland, Susan Penhaligan, and Joan Greenwood. That sounds worth watching. Also, at (laughs) 1.30 in the morning... Second prime time. Second prime time. The Baron of Arizona offbeat story about an elaborate scheme to prove legal ownership of the state of Arizona. Based on fact, excellent performance by Vincent Price. This is what we had in the 80s, man. That's pretty That's damn great. good. The Baron of Arizona. Based on fact. That's it's the best not part. factual. Don't get your hopes up. Vincent Price playing a Baron. That sounds sure. obviously. Obviously good. the ad of Arizona yeah. makes me question. Are we ready to move on to headlines? Yes. Headlines. 
My first one I know you're going to love. This is a story that appeared last week. The world finally knows why Garfield phones keep washing up on French beaches. And the answer is? This is one of the Earth's great mysteries, Garfield phones. For over 30 years, these have been washing up on French beaches without explanation. The writer here from New York Magazine's Vulture gets a little carried away. Quote, like cheerful plastic metonyms of the Anthropocene. Metonym? Metonym. I'm going to guess that a metonym is some sort of referential embodiment of a larger construct or concept. Sounds right. Yeah, but is it right? Metonymy? A term of rhetoric and cognitive linguistics is the use of a single characteristic to identify a more complex entity. Hmm, I was right. It is also known as a denominatio. Denominatio. Wasn't that Christian Slater's name in In the Name of the Rose? (laughs) Anyway, for 30 years, these things have been washing up on a beach and no one knows what the hell is going on. Finally, someone went into a secluded sea cave accessible only at low tide. This could make a great movie. I love it. And they found a shipping container that had been filled with these phones (laughs) that had been lost. The container had somehow gotten wedged inside this secluded sea cave and over 30 years had disgorged the Garfield phones one at a time. And they sourced the location of the phones and the mystery is now resolved. And as the French say, et fini. I have some other headlines here, Chris, but you know what? I had a snarky story here. I was going to make fun of uh, Mark McGrath from Sugar Ray as, as said that he's going deaf oh, yeah. and it's terrible for him because if he can't hear, he can't sing in the same mellifluous Way tonality that he's been doing ever since the hits of Sugar Ray. Like, right. All-Star? No, All-Star is Smash Mouth, dude. Oh. And don't cut that out, <laughs> whatever you do. Which one am I going to be offending, the Smash Mouth fans or the Sugar Ray fans? Matt, play me a little Sugar Ray for the hell of it. Okay, Chris, that's all the headlines I have for you. I'm going to keep it short today because I want to play something that I know you are as excited about as I am yes. in our Rants and Raves section. And that is, Chris, the brand new trailer, which won't be brand new by the time this episode comes out in right. two weeks' time or one week time. Six months, but, but yeah. Six months. <laughs> the movie will already come out and it's turned out to suck. <laughs> exactly. And Enjoy this moment of optimism. Joaquin Phoenix in Todd Phillips' forthcoming Joker origin tale with a 1970s vibe. Color me all in. Arthur, does it help to have someone to talk to? My mother always tells me to smile and put on a happy face. She told me I had a purpose to bring laughter and joy to the world. Is it just me? Or is it getting crazier out there? Smile, though your heart is aching. Smile, even though it's breaking. When there are clouds in the fear and sorrow, smile. And maybe tomorrow. What's so funny? Freak! (laughs) 
I used to think that my life was a tragedy. But now I realize it's a comedy. Goosebumps. That is a fucking amazing trailer. My thoughts about this have gone back and forth up until seeing this. It could be a good, great trailer, bad movie, but I don't know, man. That is so tonally what I'm interested in for a Joker origin story. I've seen on Twitter people sort of saying, like, I don't know if we need another disaffected white guy. White guy then becoming a violent criminal. But I mean, we are talking about one of the most iconic comic book characters of all time. And as such, if you're going to tell a story, Adding depth to a story is always better than to trivialize. Yeah. And I also think Joaquin Phoenix is one of those actors that you sort of expect so much that by now I'm like, oh, forget, who cares? And yet, actually watching it, it really looks like he's doing something that's different. I don't know. And yet looks worthwhile. The 70s-ness of it, the obvious shout out to King of Comedy. I just think it gets right a certain approach that feels like it can add something to a character who is after Heath Ledger never really needs to be revisited. It's definitive. And Mm -hmm. yet, so I would approach this type of trailer with a healthy dose of skepticism. The only little thing that I'd be concerned about is the director is Todd Phillips, which doesn't feel like a fit at first blush. However, we're talking the Joker. We're talking dark comedy. We're talking a loser tale. These are actually things that Todd Phillips can do. Worried about. I was not so much thinking of the dark comedy elements of it. You know, he first made his name with a documentary, Frat House. I didn't know that. I remember reading about it. That it was a pretty unflinching mm. look at the violence and ugliness within a fraternity. And if he's looking for that same kind of thing in what drives a person to become mm-hmm. nihilistic, violent. I, I'm just so all in on this trailer. DC must have high hopes. With the release date slated for October, that is Oscar season. That Mm. is a time when you release a movie that you believe is going to be in awards contention. But they must know enough to think that Joaquin Phoenix is going to garner that cast. The cast Joaquin is great. Phoenix, Brian Tyree Henry. Brian Tyree Henry. Brian Callen, our boy, Brian Get Callen. Brian Callen is a guy we worked with here many, many times. He's one of the funniest freaking people ever. And he's been in the Hangover movies. He's the Todd Phillips regular. Uh-huh. It says, Brian Callen, stripper. I have no idea what that is, what what that is, but as a- And they didn't put that in the trailer, They didn't put that in the trailer. Now, we're not going to get Batman, apparently, because the way this takes place, young Bruce Wayne is a cast member. So we're going to see Bruce Wayne's father is apparently more involved in the story of how the Joker became the Joker than we've previously been told. Yes. So I'm not sure where they're going with that. It doesn't sound like we're going to, there's no need to have a Batman appearance. And I read a little bit that this is part of a campaign that DC is doing with these standalone, no sequel. They're not trying to create franchises. They're just doing one-off origin story movies with interesting takes like this. Mm -hmm, So mm -hmm. that's all I got for you, Chris. Uh, Great. I have a rave. I was going to mention this to you a couple days ago, but I was like, I'm going to save it for this specifically. Save it for the pod. 
Edward Zapata put up his acting reel recently. Oh no, I hate, these stories break my heart. This won't break your heart. Edward Zapata works as a background extra in Los Angeles, and he made a compilation of the stuff that he has been in uh, and says with it, solid evidence that every TV show, movie, and commercial are all in the same cinematic universe. And it's got dramatic music in the mm-hmm. background, and it's going, then it'll stop, and a little circle will show where he, he is, is in the background. background. And it's, you know, it's all, it's shameless, ballers, American Vandal, all Captain Marvel, work. all crowd work. Something called Schooled, a Volkswagen commercial, a Sprint commercial with two different guys on a bench guy. Really? All this stuff, including actually the TV series of, of Heathers. Heathers. He was in he that. He was in the background wow. in uh, one episode. And it's just so funny because it, he made it himself and he That's does hilarious. a great job editing it. And you know what? He's going to probably get a film role out of it. I hope so. Because as of right now, the only IMDb credit is a short called Troubled Waters. But I don't know if it's the same Eduardo Zapata. Anyway, Eduardo Zapata, uh, very funny and guy. And you tied it all the way I'm, back into Heather's. And you didn't course. even know you were doing it. That's how smart you are, Chris. Always working in the background. Just when I'm getting ready to write you off. <laughs> I mean, no, I don't mean that. What am I saying? Uh, I'm already writing you off. Okay, so what's your dramatic intro to our brilliant filmic ending? Well, it's a well-known truism that if you scratch a cynic, you'll find a wounded romantic, and that certainly holds for Heathers, a movie with more than its share of satirical targets handled with incisive coldness, but which still has a pumping, pained, fleshy center that may have asked itself the question... Oh, yes. I believe in friends. I believe we need them. But if one day you find that you just can't trust them anymore, well, what then? What then? Thanks for listening to Full Cast and Crew. I just wanted to remind everyone to subscribe if you haven't already, so you'll get a new episode every Thursday. And uh, we'd love to hear from you. So email us at fullcastandcrewpod at gmail.com, or you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at at fullcastandcrew, or find us on Facebook.